0: Invite the rest of you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Matthew, Matthew, the twelfth chapter, Matthew chapter twelve. Now, this morning's message, I think, uh, I'm going to use an illustration that most of you can relate to here, being in the North Woods. This message is a bit like a chainsaw. Uh, pick it up carelessly, and somebody's bound to get hurt by it. Uh, Now, I'm not the only one with that opinion, but I read where one commentator said he believed this morning's passage that we're looking at had done more harm to people than good. And that even he wondered why God would uh, choose to include it in the Scriptures. And he felt so strongly about this, in fact, that he urged no pastor to ever preach it. But uh, I believe, of course, as you know, there's no portion of God's Word that does not have a blessing for us if we handle it correctly. And uh, so this is one of those passages that would be easy to say, well, I just think I'll skip that, those verses and say let's move on to something else. But when you do a, wor- a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word, I think, to be honest, to be true to God's word, you need to just keep going right through whatever it says, and make the application to our lives as God, the Holy Spirit, would make. And I trust uh, it'll be a blessing this morning as well. I believe that's even true of this morning's message that uh, we don't we don't want to skip it. Uh, I believe that once we get past the immediate problems it seems to present, get down really to the heart of the message. God can use this passage to bless us greatly, and he can even call someone to eternal life through it, I believe. I also believe that it should be handled with great humility and with reliance upon the Holy Spirit's guidance and help, and we do trust that God the Holy Spirit will teach us, be our teacher, and I hope that by God's grace we can handle this remarkable passage correctly today and gain the greatest possible blessing from it. This passage is a part of our ongoing study of Matthew's gospel. It tells us of an encounter that the Lord Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day as a result uh, of a notable miracle that he performed. And Jesus, as we have seen in the 12th chapter of Matthew here, was experiencing increasing opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. And so in this morning's passage, the opposition came to a very decisive point. Look with me at beginning verse 22. We'll read the uh, text which we're looking at, and then we'll look at the individual verses of, of it. Verse 22, it says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand." And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, and how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I be, by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house, And spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forsaken unto men." And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. And we'll stop there this morning. Now, as you probably noticed, as I read that passage, toward the end of it, Uh, is something mentioned that's caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems for a lot of people. Uh, It's the whole question of the so-called unpardonable sin. You see, this passage is really not about the unpardonable sin. In fact, that sin is only an incidental part of what this passage is really about. And I believe that once we understand what this Passage is really about, we'll understand that the unpardonable sin that is mentioned here uh, in it, we'll better understand it. Uh, The setting of this passage, of course, is very important to notice, and I always emphasize that the context is very important when studying the scriptures. Uh, Don't take a couple of verses out here and say, oh, this means such and such. No, read it and study it in the context and you'll be able to better understand it. And so you see here the opposition again that Jesus is receiving from the religious leaders of the day. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day in their synagogue, and as far as the Pharisees were concerned, that's the last straw. Uh, that's, that's it. He, he has really gone overboard on, on this uh, healing thing, and especially to do it on the Sabbath. Uh, he was proving himself, though, to be the Son of God. They wouldn't believe in him, or they wouldn't receive him as such, and so they plotted together against them. Uh, we read there in verse uh, uh, twenty, uh, uh, verse twenty-one. It says, and "In his name shall uh, the Gentiles trust." Then was brought unto him. Uh, well, that's not exactly where I was looking for, but uh, the plot that uh, they they wanted uh, uh, him to. Uh, uh, to be uh, done away with. They wanted to get him out of there. And so they plotted so that they might destroy him. I'm not seeing it at this time. But this growing, this intensifying opposition against Jesus is really the context, again, of what we're talking about this morning. And so when we come to this particular part of the passage, we find Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And before their very eyes, the Holy Spirit was authenticating to them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Other people who observed it all uh, began to wonder. And we read there, uh, they asked the question, uh, is not this the son of David? And upon hearing that, of course, the Pharisees, they jump right in and they start accusing Jesus of being able uh, to cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. That's in verse 24. And uh, this was what kind of got the uh, thing going here that evoked the startling words, I guess, from Jesus, as we see there in verses 31 and 32. Uh, Mark, when he tells this story, uh, he adds that Jesus spoke the words to the Pharisees because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. So however we understand the unpardonable sin, we have to see that it's in the context of the fact that the Pharisees were witnessing the work of the Holy Spirit being exhibited through Jesus personally, and then attributing the power to perform that work to an evil source. They were saying, "What what is being done here by the Holy Spirit is really being done by an evil source. It's a sin that was committed when the Jewish religious leaders witnessed the actual work of Jesus Christ in performing a miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's undeniable uh, in an undeniable way and in his bodily presence. And yet they are so persistently hardening their hearts against Jesus they dared to call uh, the Holy Spirit the devil. Now that's really all that the Bible really tells us about this remarkable sin, the so-called unpardonable sin. Now, we don't have a right to define it any other way than what the Bible defines it. And that means that, strictly speaking, this is not a sin that could be committed today. This is a sin that was unique. Uh, It committed at a unique time uh, by a unique people and why uh, was it received in such a unique condemnation? Listen, I believe there is absolutely no sin today that Jesus Christ cannot and will not forgive. There is no sin that Jesus Christ cannot and will not forgive if the sinner confesses and repents. And what's more, I believe that people who are fearful... That they have committed, oh, the unpardonable sin. I don't, I've talked to some people. I think, you know, they've said, oh, I've committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus can never, I can never be saved. I've committed the unpardonable sin. I believe if they're fearful and they worry that they will never be forgiven, actually proved by the presence of their fear, they haven't really committed it at all. You see, the Bible teaches us that it is a gracious work of the Holy Spirit to. Reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And so I believe that a man or a woman who sincerely feels the conviction of sin is experiencing the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Because apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, he or she wouldn't even have any conviction at all. So, in all of this, we should remember that the Holy Spirit is just that. Holy. Most holy. And at very least, Jesus' words concerning the dreadful seriousness of blaspheming the Holy Spirit should teach us that we should not speak about the Spirit or His ministry in a very flippant or careless way. I believe the passage teaches us that we should always respond with utmost reverence to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit seeks to teach us from the Scriptures about Jesus. And that brings us to what the passage is really all about. The main concern here, again, is not some kind of unpardonable sin. As I've said, it is really incidental to what Jesus wants us to know. And if you want to really look at the key verse of this passage, look again at verse 28. Verse 28 says, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. That's the main point. That there before them was, right there, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King. He was actually in their presence. The kingdom of God has come upon them and now uh, there before them in the person of the king himself. And if you really uh, would like a verse that highlights the key application of this passage, then look at verse 33. Either make the tree good or his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. Jesus calls his Pharisees to make a clear-cut decision about himself. It's got to be one way or the other. Either call it good or call it evil. Make up your mind. And so the point of this passage today is that the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus forces every one of us to realize who Jesus is and make a decision about Him. We have been given the testimony of Jesus. It's written down for us in the pages of the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit has preserved it for us, and he's authenticated to us by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit himself with respect to the truth of all things, and especially of these things. In fact, we stand at even greater advantage than the Pharisees of old, because we have the full story. They didn't have the completed Bible. We have the full story, not only about Christ's righteous life and his miracles, as those Pharisees, they knew about those things, but we also know about his death and his burial and his resurrection. See, that hadn't happened yet. These Pharisees didn't know that it was going to happen. We also know about Christ's ongoing ministry over the past 2000 plus years and how he's changed lives of those who trusted him. You know, we have evidence of that sitting right here in this auditorium this morning. We were sinners, lost in our sin and on our way to hell, but Jesus came and He saved us. And there's many of you can testify to that this morning. I trust all of you can. People in our day have a far greater and more complete testimony of the truth about Jesus Christ. And so it comes before us that we either receive Him or we reject Him. We receive Him or reject Him. Again, there's no middle ground. There's no third option here. You either receive Him or you reject Him. The way we choose with respect to Jesus is what reveals the nature of what is in our heart. And that's what this passage is really about. So, First of all, notice the situation of healing. The situation of healing, verse 22, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed and insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Now, there are stories in the Bible of how demons afflicted people in harmful physical ways. We've already seen some of them in our study. We'll see some more in our study of uh, in the future of Matthew as well. And apparently this poor man had a de- demon that afflicted him and just... Such a way. And while there were some Jewish people in those days who claimed to have the ability to cast out demons, none of them would dare claim to be able to do so in such a way as to heal a man's blindness and restore his ability to speak. And to do that which would have been a notable miracle. One would immediately verify whether or not that person truly had the power and the authority to cast out demons. And by the way, I can't help but think of what a picture it is of this helplessness of this man as a picture of the helplessness of a sinner apart from God's grace. You see, the demon possessed him had effectively closed him off from the way of life, the way of life. He lived at a time when Jesus walked on the earth, and there there were blind men in that day who cried out to Jesus for mercy. We saw that in chapter 9. But this poor man was not even able to see the Savior. But he wasn't even able to cry out. uh, If he was able to see, he wouldn't have been able to cry. The Bible tells us that the God of this world is able to blind the minds of those who are perishing, which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And apart from God's grace this morning, you and I are no better than this poor blind man. But Matthew tells us he was brought to Jesus. I want to stop right there for a moment. He was brought. Did you see that? You might have missed it. As you read verse 22, we've read it twice now. Then was brought unto him. Who brought him? Somebody that cared? When's the last time you brought someone to Jesus? When's the last time you brought someone to church? I give some of the kids a hard time by... uh, I actually give the adults a hard time, but I give the kids, I say, thanks for bringing your grandpa to church today. You know? And I'm, th- I'm glad you brought one another. Some of you came together. Some of you brought yourself. <laughs> but we need to be bringing people to Jesus. We're going to talk about this this afternoon again. He was brought to Jesus. Jesus stop and think about that for a moment. Are we bringing people to church? Are we bringing them to Jesus? And then it says, and he healed them, insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. This then is a remarkable miracle. And it was also a great kind uh, act of kindness and mercy on the part of the Savior toward this poor man. Again, it, it was a picture, if I may, of the regenerative Grace of God, calling the sinner to live, giving him or her eyes to see their need, giving him or her ears to hear the gospel, giving him or her the voice to cry out to God for salvation and confess faith in Christ. Someone might give a testimony and say, I found God. No, they didn't. He found you. He found you. Oh, by the grace of God that gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the voice to cry out to Him for salvation. This leads us to the next point here, and that is the reactions of the witnesses. Verse 23, the reactions of the witnesses. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the Son of David? Those who brought the poor man to Jesus, and perhaps others who stood by and witnessed it, They were amazed at what they saw. The word here in the Greek means that they were put out of their place by it. They were so astonished at the things they saw, and they began to ask questions about Jesus. Is not this the Son of David? That is, the long-awaited Messiah? In fact, according to the way it's worded in the original language, it almost as if they were in some measure of disbelief about him but they were still so astounded by him as to be uncertain about their disbelief. It was right then that the Pharisees jumped into the picture. People were beginning to believe on him, but they had to put a stop to that. We can have none of this nonsense, people believing in Jesus. Matthew tells us in verse 24, And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils, To say that Jesus operated in the power of Beelzebub was extremely vulgar blasphemy. It was a play on the name of a false god, and the Jewish people altered it to mean Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. It was a name that had come to be understood by the Jewish people as a reference to Satan. Jesus himself warned his disciples about his enemies treating him shamefully. They also would treat his followers shamefully when he said, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? This is not the only time the Pharisees said this kind of thing about Jesus. Back in chapter 9, when he cast out a demon out of the different man and healed him of his inability to speak, they said, he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. And so this is not just a spontaneous reaction this was an expression of a heart that was progressively hardening against the Lord and against the Savior. Here they were basically saying that the fact that he was able to exercise authority over demons was because he himself was enabled by, to do so by the devil. They really never recognized his authority over the demons because as the Son of God in human flesh, he had authority over the devil as well. Now, when Jesus physically gave sight and voice to the man, he revealed the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. On another occasion, Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see, might not, uh, might, or see not might see, and they that which see might be made blind. And so we find here the reaction of the witnesses. It's always bad when you turn two pages instead of one. So I believe this underscores the deep hardness and the sinful hearts of the Pharisees. It was evident. They were trying to dissuade the people. They were trying to disrupt Jesus. They were trying to get the people off course here. They were trying to prevent the people from seeing the Lord Jesus. They were actually trying to stifle belief about him. Again, later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will bring this back upon them and said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourself, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. I think this is, it's very important right here at this point to realize the importance and the seriousness of what they're doing. They're standing before these people, and here was with them the long-awaited Messiah, and here were the religious leaders of the people, the very ones who should have been welcoming the Messiah, seeing him perform miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet they rejected him. They despised him, and going so far to say that he operated in the power of the devil. And just to keep other people from trusting him. And so we see here a contrast. We see people who brought someone to Jesus, and we get someone who's trying to keep people away. Keep people away. It's important to understand what a lost opportunity this was for these leaders. It's important to understand what a decisive reaction to him that it was. As the Scripture says, "...he came into his own, and his own received him not." By the way, how do you react to what the Holy Spirit reveals to you about him? Do you receive it and trust him, or do you reject it? Well, Matthew tells us that none of this was hidden from the Lord, he says, and Jesus knew their thoughts, and he responded to those thoughts. He showed how foolish and nonsensical it was to reject him on the argument of operating in the power of the devil. That leads us to the next thing to consider, and that is the arguments of our Lord. The arguments of our Lord. Notice, first of all, there's three principles involved here. First of all, the principle of disunity. Verse 25, the principle of disunity. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Now this is a matter of common sense. No organization, no institution, no corporation, no family, no church can ever stand if there's discord within it. If it fights against itself and actively seeks to undo its own interest, it's doomed. Jesus takes this principle of disunity and applies it to the argument of the Pharisees against him to show them how absurd it was. Notice verse 26. He says, And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? You see, if this were the case, or Satan isn't stupid, uh, he, he spreads his own evil uh Kingdom by destroying men, and if he himself were in the habit of casting out his own demons, how stupid is that? That doesn't make sense. If that's the case, then the Pharisees would have done the best to simply shut up and watch the devil work. But Jesus is showing them that in casting demons out of men, he was not doing the part of the uh, kingdom of Satan any favors, he was operating. Not in the kingdom of, uh, in the power of the uh, Satan, but of the Spirit. Notice the second principle here: the principle of disability. Disability. Jesus seems to allow them their argument just to show them how arbitrary their accusation was. The first argument demonstrated they were mistaken about Jesus. The second argument demonstrates more of the hardness of their heart. Look at verse twenty-seven. It says. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they should be your judges. Now, there are a couple of opinions about that. Some have just suggested that Jesus was arguing about the fact that Jewish people had within their ranks those who claimed to be able to cast out demons. Jesus referred to them as Pharisees' children, that is, their followers. It would be as if he was saying, think of your own followers casting out demons. Tell me, do they do their work by the power of the devil or by the power of God? Now, obviously, they're not going to claim that their own children cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's one way of looking at it, but I personally question that the followers of the Pharisees even had that ability. I believe Jesus was pointing to the fact that they couldn't cast anything out at all. There are stories of Jewish people casting out demons, but they were fanciful, they were ridiculous. And so I take it that Jesus said, and if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? It was meant to point to the fact that it was by nobody. Because they can't cast out demons at all. And I believe that makes sense of the fact that he says in the future tense, Therefore, they shall be your judges, in verse 27. And so in the, in, in the end of it, an ability of children of the Pharisees would condemn them and prove that the results of their demon casters were more in keeping with Satan's kingdom to keep demons in. Because Jesus actually cast them out. They were just casting out nothing. I think also that makes more sense of the conclusion that he draws in verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. What he's doing here is forcing the Pharisees to the inevitable conclusion. Since they couldn't cast anything out themselves, it was only revealing that Jesus truly did operate in the Holy Spirit, and this would mean that they were right there standing before them was the king himself and the kingdom of god was come upon them unto them and they must now choose what are you going to do with the king you're going to receive him or reject him and then there's a third principle it's the, I call it the principle of powerlessness verse 9 Or twenty nine, or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? Again, this is based on common sense. You know, if somebody's in a house, the house owner, and this house owner happens to be strong, maybe he's a world-class bodybuilder or a professional wrestler, maybe he has a black belt in karate, or maybe he's a champion rifle marksman. Now, if you're going to enter in and, and steal things from him, you better have a lot of duct tape and a good solid chair so you can bound him up. Once he is successfully bound the strong man, then the thief can make it possible for the strong man to stop him. And so Jesus says, and then he will spoil or plunder his house. Here in this parable, Satan is the strong man and the souls of men and women are the spoil. They're the ones who are being plundered. And Jesus is clearly indicating that he has exercised superiority over the the devil in he uh, spoiling Satan's domain. Because being bound by him, Satan can do nothing to stop him. And all of this... Is meant to do two things. First of all, it meant to remove the Pharisees uh, from the Pharisees the ability to argue that Jesus operated in the power of the devil. And then also, it meant to force them to an inescapable conclusion that the kingdom of God was truly come upon them in the person of the king himself. But in spite of it all, they would not receive him. Instead, what do they do? They harden their hearts. And so that leads us next to the warning against hardness of heart. The warning against hardness of heart. First of all, I want you to say say this. We're talking about no neutrality here. And I've already made this point, and I want to emphasize it again. It's black or white when it comes to response to Jesus. Verse 30, it says, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Jesus has spoken of only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, which he was the king, or the kingdom of the devil, of which he was the enemy. And that was no possibility of a third kingdom formed by the Pharisees. There are no alternatives. There's no middle ground. The Pharisees were either of one kingdom or the other. And folks, there are no multi-faceted Kingdoms today. There are only two kinds of people in the world they're saved or lost. They've either received the message or they've rejected it. And yet today people believe oh, I'm just neutral. I'm neutral toward Jesus. But he has put everyone at the fork of the decision this morning. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, he has said, Whosoever therefore shall not confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And if you think we can simply be neutral toward Jesus Christ, we are deceiving ourselves. In fact, we're being blinded by the devil to not be with Jesus is to set oneself against Jesus. To not gather with him is to scatter in opposition. There's no neutrality. Secondly, there's no hope. Jesus takes us a step farther, farther and he warns that there is no hope for those who persist in hardening their hearts against him. In the case of the Pharisees, to see the truth about Jesus, to have Him revealed before their eyes by the Holy Spirit, and then dare to blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit for uh, having revealed the truth, was to commit a sin that was revealed unredeemable heart. Jesus says there in verse 31, Wherefore I say unto you all matter of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men but the blasphemy against the holy spirit or ghost shall not be forgiven unto men and whosoever speaketh a word against the son of man it shall be forgiven him but whosoever speaketh not against the holy ghost it shall be for uh, not be forgiven him neither in this world neither in the world to come someone might ask well why is a word spoken against the son of man forgivable but blasphemy against the holy spirit unforgivable Again, I believe this is for a specific time, a specific people, that Jesus is talking about here. But I believe the answer to those questions might be, in fact, that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't even truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve three, Paul said, Wherefore I give to you un- to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, And that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, you see, is the shining spotlight on Christ. It's the one thing that the Pharisees of that day uh, misunderstood. That the one upon whom the light had been shined. And that, of course, was the result of their blindness. What hope is there for someone who's blinded? Well, all of this was intended to present Jesus to us and to show him to to be who he truly was and is. And so that leads us to a final point here, and that's the call to make a choice. A call to make a choice. Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's time to make a choice. There could be no more wishy-washiness. Verse 33 says, either make the tree good or his, and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. He was in effect saying, it's time to come to a conclusion. You cannot ride the fence any longer. You cannot get by by uh, by by simply saying, well, it's a good thing this man who claims to be a Messiah casts out demons. You know, I'm all for casting out demons, but I don't accept his claim. I believe that he's doing a good thing. Maybe something that God's going to approve. His fruit's good, but I don't accept him. You know, there's kind of those kind of people around today. Oh yeah, Jesus, How huh? he's a good man, he's a good teacher, but I don't accept him. The fruit may be good, but the tree is bad. You can't say that kind of thing. You must choose. Either say, in casting out demons, I do evil, and in evil at the root, or say, in casting out demons, I do the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I am God. That's what Jesus is telling them. Again, there are only two kinds of people in this room this morning. I hope there's only one kind, but could well be. There are only two kinds, and that is saved people and lost people. There are only two choices to make. Receive the message or reject it. Receive Christ or reject, reject Him. Which one are you and which choice have you made? There's no act of sin that you could commit for which there is no forgiveness. Of course, if you resist the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness, because He's bringing forgiveness. It's like the man who is dying of a certain disease. The doctor tells him there is a remedy for it. The man refuses to take the remedy, and he dies. What did he die from? Not from the disease. He died from not taking the re- remedy for it. The remedy for the disease of sin is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit applies it, but if you resist it, there is no remedy, and you will die in your sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. And Lord, it's easy for us, to, and for us to get caught up in the way people try to interpret the Scripture by saying, well, this is what the Bible says. And yet, they've not really looked at what the Bible says. They've only looked at what they think it says and what they want it to say. And so, Lord, they say it's good, but they've rejected Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's someone here this morning came to church because that's the right thing to do, that's a good thing to do, but they've not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I pray, Lord, that they'll be confronted with the choice that is before them. Either receive Him or reject Him. And help them to know if they reject, there is no hope. Lord, we thank You for Your Word again. Bless it to our hearts Bless our time of invitation as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your songbooks, if you will, and turn to number 328. 328, as we take into account what the message that God's given to us this morning, let's trust Him. Not ourselves, not some other religion. Well, let's trust Him. Don't trust this preacher, don't trust this church, trust Jesus. He's the choice. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord.